Yes, we haven't sung that song in a while. I love that song. Walt wrote that years ago here at Grace, and uh, he'll give it a little facelift this morning. I liked it. I was so excited singing it in the first service that uh, uh, I uh, jumped in early on the second verse and sang at the top of my lungs, and because we're a family, no one <laughs> pointed it out to me or made fun. But you noticed it, didn't you, Caleb? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, in the first service this morning, honestly, it, another thought as we were singing, I peeked around and looked at some of the people sitting around me, and my thought was, I would not rather be anywhere else this morning than right here with you all, and 8 a.m. service as well, but you all, I'm serious, I, I, I would not rather be anywhere else on a Sunday morning. Um, I love this church. I love you. I love what we, what we do, filling this room with praise, opening the word together, learning, coming out of here and talking with one another and spurring each other on to trust Jesus in the day-to-day. Um, this is where it's at. This is a good place to be here this morning. I'm glad you're here. Um, and I actually asked Caleb if we could sing that song because I want us to start thinking about those two phrases here. <clears throat> All around us is darkness, the blackest of night. That's one idea. We're holding on to right there. And yet we've been adopted as children of light. All around us is darkness, yet we've been adopted. Let's think of the adopted part first. We have been adopted as children of light. If you are a believer, if you have turned from your sin and turned uh, with empty hands to God and thanked him for his son Jesus being given in your place for your sins and laid your life down, given it to him, um, you are adopted as a child of light. Like we sang in Be Thou My Vision, you can say, um, Thou my great Father and I thy true Son to God. But God adopted us, Ephesians 1 says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. He he makes us holy and blameless by covering us with Christ's righteousness, but he's not content then to just leave it at that. He wants to make us righteous. He wants to restore his image in us. He wants to stamp out and root out the sin in our hearts that twists and bends us um, out of his image. He wants to make us truly holy and blameless in the way we walk as children of light in this world. He wants us to walk as children of light. And so then there's the first line here, and yet all around us is darkness. So this is not easy. The context in which God is making us holy and blameless is we live in a world that's dark. This, the, uh, we sang in all glory be to Christ, the kingdom, uh, his kingdom one day will be perfect peace. But that's not our world. Romans 12, 2, Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. We live in a world that pressures us to conform to values that are not God's, to adopt priorities that are not God's, to erect idols and center our lives around objects of worship that are not God, to, to live in ways and practice things that God says, that's not where life is. That's not what I created you for. And there's a pressure to conform because we're surrounded by it. And conforming is so easy. Let me back up. One thought I just want to make sure we hit is even though there's an eternal day coming like we just sang about where his kingdom will be perfect, peace and righteousness will reign and justice will be uh, unneeded because there will, th- we will all treat one another rightly. Uh, right now, um, it's not that way. Dave made the point last week, if righteousness reigned, there'd be no need for justice. No cop cars, no judges, no courts. Can you imagine a world like that? Our grace group last week sat on, in our backyard thinking about that for a bit, trying to picture a world where uh, I was thinking about a, a dear saint uh, who I miss who's with Jesus right now, Chris 
Mitchell. He used to say, you know, most people talk about, I can't wait for that day because it'll be safe, meaning um, I will be safe from anything that can hurt me. And he says, that's true. He says, but you know what I'm looking forward? I'm looking forward to being safe. I won't hurt anyone else again. But this world's not like that. This world right now is, is not the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And it has a pressure to conform us. And being conformed is easy, isn't it? In the, in the existence of a pressure upon us to conform, all you have to do to be conformed is nothing. It's just to go with the flow, to be conformed. Not being conformed is a res- form of resistance, isn't it? It's pulling in the opposite direction. It means exerting our minds and our will uh, in our, to be self-aware and discern between right and wrong and good and evil, even in situations that it's not maybe immediately clear. Not being conformed uh, does, requires better desires that pull me Godward rather than the desires that are in my heart that pull me toward the world. And with all of that, we need outside help, don't we? I need outside help. Even with all of that, I need the help of the Holy Spirit transforming within like we just sang. And this is the ongoing battle until the day we're all with Jesus forever. Dying to self, saying yes to his will, daily following him. That's what we just sang. Then tomorrow, dying to self, saying yes to his will, daily following him. That's what God calls us to as children of light. We need God's help for this don't we? I think Genesis 19 is a great help for this. It encourages us in two directions. It pulls us toward the God of grace and gives us a picture of him that should leave us saying, why would I run anywhere else? Why would I not say, thou and thou only, first in my heart? And it also reminds us of a very honest, unvarnished view of sin and what sin will bring one day that should leave us saying, there is no life for me there. Genesis 19 helps us with both. Let me read it and pray and let's dive in. Remember, at the end of chapter 19, three visitors had come to Abraham, one of whom was the Lord, and the other two were angels. And at the end of that interaction, the, the two angels move down to Sodom, and Abraham has this conversation with the Lord, interceding on behalf of Sodom. And so we pick up at 19 with following the action where the angels go. So verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. <coughs> And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. He bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he said, my lords, please spend the night, wash your feet. And then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and they entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Well, Lot went out to the men at the entrance and he shut the door after him and he said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you. Um, And do to them as you please, only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he's become the judge. 
Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot, and they drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands, and they brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Well, then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone in the city? Bring them out of this place. We are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out, and he said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place! The Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Was morning dawn, the angels urged Lot, Up, take your wife and your daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and they set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city's near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? My life will be saved. And he said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. And therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Well, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, She became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he'd stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which God, Lot had lived. We pray. Holy Spirit, help us this morning. Lord, the pressure to conform hits us every day. Lord, sometimes in obvious ways, oftentimes in ways we don't even notice. God, I pray this morning you'd help us to see some things very clearly. The sinfulness of sin, the emptiness of it, its end, Lord, I pray you'd also help us to see your mercy and your grace, your patience, and be reminded that you're rescuing us like this. Help us to see this morning. Help each one here to respond to your word in the way they need to most this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, four takeaways from this story that I think encourage us in the resistance. Number one, It's possible to be counted among the righteous and yet be deeply compromised and stained by the world. Isn't that true? We can have 
sincere faith that God counts as righteousness. We can belong to God. We can be counted among the righteous. And at the same time, we can be conformed to the world. That's why Paul says don't be conformed is because we often are conformed. We can uh, compromise and allow the world to stain us and, and mark us deeply in ways that are grievous and have consequences in our life and, and actually um, lie about the, God, the gospel and the God who saved us. That's possible. I think we see evidence of a righteous man who is still deeply compromised and stained in chapter 19. Look at the first seven verses. We see his righteousness. Let's not lose sight. Peter's not out in left field in 2 Peter when he calls Lot righteous Lot. We're supposed to read at the beginning of this chapter, Lot looks like a righteous man. He looks a lot like Abraham. There's parallels in the first few verses of 18 and 19 in 18, Abraham's sitting at the door of his tent and these visitors arrive. And so it's very intentional here. The author says, at the beginning of chapter 19, Lot is sitting at the gate and visitors arrive. Oh, that sounds familiar. And we're supposed to notice the parallels. Like Abraham, Lot gets up and he greets the visitors and he bows his face to the earth, it says. Like Abraham, he shows them humility with titles of respect my lords. And like Abraham, he offers them water and food and, and a chance to wash their feet and be refreshed. We're supposed to see Lot resembling Abraham right here. He's a righteous man. Verse 3, we see his righteousness when he urgently insists that these visitors not spend a night in the town square. He knows what kind of city he lives in. And he urgently presses them. He presses them strongly to come under his roof. Unfortunately, his attempts to get them safe into his house unseen are unsuccessful. In verse 4, by contrast to righteous Lot, we see the wickedness in the city with our own eyes. God, the outcry had come up to God, but now, as these angels come, we get a glimpse of how bad it really is. And the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, so this is pervasive down through the generations in the city. All the people to the last man, they surround the house and they demand Lot hand these two visitors over to be sexually assaulted horrific and Lot is standing in contrast to this right now as the one who tried to rescue them and keep them safe under his roof in verse 6 we see Lot's righteousness in initially his his act is to selflessly protect his visitors right so they start yelling out the door he goes outside he shuts the door behind him puts himself between the mob and the visitors and he says my brothers don't do this we see his righteousness in him calling wickedness, wickedness. He says, don't act so wickedly. So Lot shares God's moral compass. He clearly does not have the same moral compass as the men of Sodom, the people of Sodom. So he is set apart. He's righteous. But I think we can all agree at verse 8, the wheels start coming off the wagon in this story. And it's not pretty. Lot doesn't look like a righteous man as the story goes on. We see evidence that there's been compromise, that living in Sodom has taken its toll on Lot. We see lapses in judgment. We see entanglements with things of the world that have crept in. First of all, there's verse 8. <laughs> this appalling decision to offer up his virgin daughters in a panic to save the, the visitors from the mob. Whatever explanations and, uh, that, that commentators and try to do to say, well, okay, 
trying to give Lot the best benefit of the doubt, that he was in a really dangerous situation and he panicked and, 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 and maybe he thought he was bluffing and they wouldn't, they wouldn't have taken the offer and he knew that. And whatever the, the ways we might try to explain it, the bottom line is a dad with a daughter, this is appalling. It's cowardly and it's indefensible. Verse 8 should have read, Behold, take me and do to me as you please. (laughs) Only do nothing to these men. They've come under the shelter of my own roof. Why doesn't Lot say that? That's an option. I think we're meant to see this not as a noble example of his hospitality, protecting his visitors at great cost, but a lapse of judgment, a severe one, and and a moment of weakness, a shameful thing. I think we see evidence of Lot's compromise in verse 9. I can't prove this, but it appears from the text, I think, that this may be the first time Lot has put his foot down and verbally called out the wickedness of the men of the city. Look at the way they respond. As soon as he says, brothers, don't do this wicked thing, he calls what they're about to do wicked, they immediately turn on him and violently And they say, who is this guy? He comes sojourn with us. He's our judge. We're going to do to you worse than what we just threatened to your visitors. It's kind of hard to believe that Lot has been calling out the wickedness of the city as righteous Lot as a pattern. So maybe internally, as Peter says, he's been tormented in his soul by the, the ugliness and the immorality around him. But all of a sudden here, when he speaks out against it, they immediately turn on him. What's that about? hard also not to wonder how in a place that's this wicked and twisted and violent and inhospitable to sojourners how is he alive and his wife and his daughters and finding husbands to marry what's that about and not only is he living there he seems to have thrived when it says he's sitting in the gate that doesn't mean he he's just happened to be out you know sitting at the gate checking out you know who's coming in and out he's one of the prominent men of the city if you look in genesis 34 don't turn there now there's another scene talks about men coming up to the gate of another city to talk to the men of the city that's where you came to to speak to some of the men the judges or the representatives of the city so lot is clearly become a man of some measure of prominence in this city that's utterly wicked what's that about Verse 14, there's this dismissal of his warning by his sons-in-law. It makes me wonder, what's that about? He goes to his sons-in-law who were marrying his daughters, marrying into his household, and they just dismiss him as he must just be joking. They just totally write him off. I don't want to make more of it than what's written here, but one of the other contrasts, if you look in Genesis 18, in verse 19, it describes Abraham. God says, I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And here's Lot and his own sons-in-law just dismiss him as joking at his urgent warning, up, get out of here. He has no influence. In verse 16, he's hesitant to follow the angels who are trying to rescue him from imminent destruction. The sun comes up. They say, let's go. It's time. Grab your wife. Grab your daughters. Let's run so you're not swept away in the punishment. And verse 16 is crazy. But he lingered. That's crazy. 
This mob the night before has just said, you know what you can expect from us? (laughs) The next morning, the angels have said, fire from heaven is about to fall on this place. Let's go. But Lot lingered. That's like Tide Pod challenge crazy. Honestly, that's irrational. Sin is irrational. It does something that in the light of day you say, why would you linger? Why would you wait one second to get out of that city? But he lingers. At this point, whatever, I don't know what pull Sodom could possibly have on him, but it does. Whatever he's enjoyed in Sodom, whatever leaving Sodom means for him, he's conflicted. The same desire that in a few more verses is going to lead his wife to perish is also in Lot's heart, isn't it? He lingers. So they have to grab him by the hand and literally seize him and drag he and his wife and daughters outside of the city walls. The wicked city still has enough hold over his heart to make him linger. Can you relate to that? I hope you, you don't say no. We, we often can love and cling to things that we know God says he will judge. We, things that Jesus died for. In our heart, we can harbor a, a secret desire for the, that and a love for that and, and be unwilling to let things go, sin go even. That's why John in 1 John that Caleb had us read says, don't love the world or the things in the world. Things of the world are passing away because Christians can love the world and the things of the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and pride of life and all the things that, that flow out of those sinful roots. We are, can be like Lot. Being in Christ doesn't preclude us from cozying up to all kinds of worldliness. Well, last, in verse 18 through 20, I think we see Lot's compromise uh, in his pleading for, con- for a concession to God's merciful plan A. <laughs> Talk about looking a gift horse in the mouth here, right? I mean, he's just been drugged from the city. Angels are saying fire is about to fall from heaven on this whole valley. And Lots is going, um, wait, excuse me. <laughs> Could I put a plan B on the table? I, I, I know that he says, it was very merciful, the Lord, <laughs> what the Lord's done for me. I realize that, but I, I just can't leave the city I can't flee to the hills. That'll overtake me. See this little city? Could I just, could I, could I just live there? Did I mention it's a little one, he says? It, it is funny. It's sadly funny. And, and graciously, the angels grant this. But what's going on with Lot? That, he, he, that, that pull is such, he just can't go all the way. I, can you just give me a little bit of city still? And they grant it. And they say, get there quick. We're not going to do anything until you get there. And God even spares that little righteous city on account of just three righteous people who end up entering it. So number one, Lot's example in this story remind us soberly that it's possible to be among God's righteous, um, but to be compromised, to be conformed, to be stained by the world um, in deep ways even. I spent a year uh, in Minnesota in college when I was 20. I transferred away to a school for a year to get out of California. And for a year, I, I just drifted. I drifted from local church involvement. I drifted from any real meaningful Christian discipling relationships of, and accountability. And I worked at a restaurant, surrounded myself with a bunch of people who didn't know the Lord and didn't care about things of the Lord. And I just, and I, meanwhile, I didn't give up what I professed in my heart. I still believed in Jesus. I still believed I needed God to save me from my sin. I still believed all the things. But for a year, 
I just drifted and I compromised in ways that a year before that I would have told you I would never do those things. It's possible. And we need to say, it's still possible. Just because I did those things at 20 doesn't mean that this week I can't do things and make choices to deeply compromise myself. And you, can't, you too. So what do we do in light of that? How do we learn from Lot's mistakes? Well, I think with the seeds of what we see in Genesis 19, we get glimpses of in Lot's story starting in Genesis 13. When Abraham and Lot decide to, to split up and spread out, Abraham magnanimously gives Lot the first choice and he looks and he sees that valley and it's so green. It's like the Garden of Eden. And yeah, there's that really wicked city down there, but he chooses that. And he doesn't just go live there. It says in 13, 12, he moves his tent as far as Sodom where the people were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. And one chapter later, oh, he's, he's actually dwelling in Sodom. And by 19, he's sitting in the gate. seeds have been planted for the compromise and the, and the lapses of judgment and the sin that comes later. James 1.27 says, religion that's pure and undefiled is to keep oneself unstained from the world. We're called to keep ourselves unstained. We can't exit the world. We can't just go fly off in a space pod and just, you know, get ourselves away from it because we're sinners and we're going to take the sin with us for, for one thing. But Keeping, we can still keep ourselves unstained from the world by being vigilant, by being awake, checking for barnacles of worldliness, right? Barnacles crushed on a little bit, and then they grow, and then they grow, and pretty soon the whole bottom of the boat's all crusty. The worldliness can, can have that influence. Are we checking ourselves regularly? Are we doing a moral inventory? Are we looking at our hearts and saying, where am I erecting idols that, that rival God for my affection and my time and, and, and make me feel like this will deliver me? Are we taking a good hard look and tipping those idols over and saying again, God, thou and thou only, first in my heart, Lot's example here, among many things, is saying to us, wake up, righteous ones. God wants you to be righteous. He's calling you to something better. Point number two. What God did in Sodom and Gomorrah was just a foretaste of what he promises he's going to do on a global scale one day. One of the clear takeaways that the New Testament says we ought to take from Genesis 19 is that Sodom and Gomorrah is just an example of something greater that's coming. Let's read verses 23, 25. The sun (coughs) had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Total destruction. And it's just. Let's not forget that. Dave pointed out last week, God's justice is just. He didn't fly off the handle. He didn't lose his cool right here. He knew very intentionally what he was doing. The outcry had come up to him. He didn't need to send angels to really see God knew. But we are given this, I think the, the angels go come for at least one purpose. We're able to see Uh, for ourselves, oh, it really was as bad as God says. And so that when fire falls, we are to conclude the judge of all the earth has done what's right. And as horrific as this picture is of everything being wiped out, like it was in the flood, we need to look at it because this is what our sin deserves. We might tell ourselves that's not the case, but the Bible says otherwise. Sin is personal. 
It's not just sinning against a list of rules somewhere in a file. It's sinning against a God who is personal, who gave you life and breath and everything. And whether it's high-handed, grossly immoral like what we see in Sodom and Gomorrah, or if it's <coughs> nicely whitewashed and polished, but on the inside, corruption and selfishness and pride, <coughs> this is what God says that deserves from a holy God. <coughs> Sodom and Gomorrah is just a glimpse of it. Listen to this from Luke 17. <coughs> Jesus says, Just as, as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. <coughs> what the Lord did in Sodom and Gomorrah on a local scale, one day he's going to do on a global scale. 2 Peter 2.6 says, By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah are an example that is to, to sober us and, yes, scare us and say, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God if I haven't dealt with my sin. <coughs> in our Take Up Your Sword reading in Matthew this week, man, Monday's reading and Wednesday's reading mapped onto the Sodom and Gomorrah story. But on Wednesday, <coughs> we read Jesus tell some parables, and he talks about what is going to happen on that final day, that day of judgment, the day of the Son of Man. And he wasn't mealy-mouthed about it. <coughs> He wasn't apologetic on God's behalf. He was very clear. He tells a story about a field where wheat and weeds grew up side by side and at harvest they're cut and the weeds are separated from the wheat and the wheat's taken into the barn and the weeds are cast into the fire. And Jesus doesn't leave that open for our interpretation. He says the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they'll gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And then Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. In other words, don't ignore that. If you have a sense of the, the fearfulness and the seriousness of that, don't dismiss that and go, eh, like Lot's sons-in-law. Don't dismiss that. Especially when it's coming out of the mouth of God in flesh who has come first not to judge, but to lay his life down as a ransom for your sin. If you're here this morning, please don't dismiss this warning. Oh, hell, fire and brimstone. God is going to judge one day. Thanks, Brandon. And it will be fearful. And the invitation right now, if you hear that warning, he who has ears, let him hear, where are you to flee to? The cross. You're to flee to Jesus. You're to flee to the one who gave that warning. What he did at the cross, Sodom and Gomorrah, reminds us of what an extraordinary thing that was. Jesus, as an innocent, as God in flesh, one of us, tempted as we are, never sinned, puts himself forward and dies in our place so that what fell on Sodom and Gomorrah could fall on him and not us. So if we hear these words, we are to flee to Jesus. So Romans 3 says, all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But we're justified. We're declared righteous. We're declared safe from the wrath to come by his grace as a gift. 
How? Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. How did Jesus do that? Well, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. A big word that means a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath, that satisfies his just judgment. Years ago, I was teaching high school, Sunday school, and we were talking about this word propitiation. I remember one student said, it's like Jesus was a wrath magnet. Yes! The wrath of God falls on Jesus, pulling it from us so that it doesn't land on us. That's what Romans says. How does that come to be true of us? We receive that offer by faith. Would you do that this morning if you've never? Admit your sin, turn from it, turn to Jesus and say, thank you for taking God's wrath for me so that I might never face it. God says he'll forgive your sin and he'll begin to make you righteous from the inside out. If you ignore that gracious offer, that's the ultimate tragedy. And Lot's wife in this story becomes literally a monument to that ignorance, to ignore such a gracious offer. Lot's wife gets one sad verse. Point number three. It's possible to appear to be among the righteous, but in the end, prove otherwise. I think verse 26 leaves us with this. Lot and his daughters, verse 23, they make it to Zoar. Lot's wife isn't there. What happened? Well, 26 backs us up and says, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. I don't think it's like what my elementary school mind pictured when I always read this story. Something like a scene from, you know, like Raiders of the Lost Ark where she peeked over her shoulder like they saw the ark and she began crystallizing into a statue white uh, right by Lot. What's that all, you know, all about? No, I think the point of her look back is what the angels had warned. Don't look back or stop anywhere. I think we're supposed to assume when it says that she looked back and we look at Zoar and we do a head count and there's only three, we're to conclude it was just not just a glance. It was a longing look back. She lagged behind. And at, at some point, they kept going and she stayed and she was engulfed in it all. And I don't think we're supposed to assume at the end of this story that Lot's wife was counted among the righteous. When Abraham says, surely God, the just judge of all the earth, won't sweep away the righteous with the wicked, I think then when we read this chapter 19 at the end, we're supposed to do the math. Well, who was swept away? Who was rescued? Turns out Lot's wife was among those who perished because her look back was more than a passing glance. It, it betrayed a longing in her. She wasn't willing to leave, as crazy as that is. In the end, the pull of her stuff and the life she had in Sodom was greater than the pull to take God's gracious rescuing hand and follow him. And she stayed behind. The call to enter the kingdom of heaven is a call to repent, to turn from sin, to leave it behind, to give it, leave everything behind, renounce it, and, and run to Jesus as Savior. And as you hear that gracious call this morning, I want to ask you, maybe you're sitting there and you feel kind of like Lot's wife. There's some things you don't want to turn away from. I know that if I follow Jesus, then I have to abandon this. I like this, so I'm not willing. Jesus says that's backwards reasoning. You are in saying, he says, let me, let me read his words. Now on the next page, there they are. Whoever seeks to preserve his life, he says, I can't let this go, will actually lose it. Not just the thing you can't let go, but your life, you'll perish. But whoever loses his life, who says, whatever, Jesus, whatever you call me to lay down, I'll do it, it's worth it. I want you. That's the one who will keep it, Jesus says. Be that one. Be that person this morning. 
Don't look back. Remember Lot's wife. And lastly, God will get his righteous ones home. God will get his righteous ones home. <clears throat> if Genesis 19 and the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of what God will do one day to the unrighteous, I think that the rescue of Lot out of the midst of it is an example of how God will get us home. It's a picture of the God of grace who rescues us out of the fire, dragging us by his grace mercifully to safety. What a beautiful picture. Dragged by the hand to safety. (laughs) This whole story is not mainly about Lot, by the way. It's about God. God judges God rescues. Look throughout this story at God's grace towards Lot. When Lot's horrible decision to offer up his daughters backfires, puts them in greater danger, God's messengers intervene, strike the crowd blind, and shut the door. Even though Lot had failed, they still rescue. When Sodom's sentence has been handed down, God gives Lot time to appeal to the rest of his family to come with him. And then when Lot lingers, they graciously seize Lot and his daughters and wife by the hand and drag them out. And then when Lot even presumes on God's grace and asks for this concession, God's patient with him. And the angels offer this thing and protect the place he's in. It's amazing. And I think that the way that God's going to get us home is similar. Like Lot, we are going to have major lapses in judgment. And we are all going to get entangled with sin and worldly stuff. This morning, we've all got our entanglements. And and we're not going to get across the finish line without some spectacular failures, probably. But praise God, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, 2 Peter 2.9. And his grace will lead us home. Caleb, I want him to come up and lead us uh, in, in a song before we move to the Lord's table. A song we've been singing the last couple of years at Grace, He Will Hold Me Fast, I think helps us sort of take this thought that God promises that he will help his saints persevere and make it to the end. He will bring us home and helps us to to, to embrace that with our hearts and cement it in our minds. Why don't we stand and let's sing this together.